welcome, welcome. If you don't know me again, hello, I'm Aaliyah, I'm a pastor, I'm so glad um, you're here to uh, worship with us this morning. So I'm going to start with a little story about a guy named N.T. Wright, uh, known, known by his friends uh, to, as Tom Wright. Um, Tom Wright, if you have heard of him, maybe you have heard of him because he's a pretty well-known theologian, New Testament scholar, writer. Um, but before all of that, he served for a number of years early in his vocation as a chaplain at Oxford University. And he tells a story um, about meeting a lot of incoming first-year students. Apparently, it was kind of the norm for him to go around and introduce himself through the dorms to all of the students there, whether or not they were looking for a chaplain. And a lot of them would look at him with a bit of a sheepish look and say, you know, something like, you're not going to be seeing much of me because I, I, I don't believe in God. And that he developed, that happened so often that Tom developed a pretty standard response. He would say something along the lines of, oh, well, that's interesting. Which God is it that you don't believe in? That question generally put people, gave them a bit of a pause, right? Like, well, I I don't know. I mean, how many gods are there, (laughs) right? You know, the God that, like, lives in the sky, that looks down on people disapprovingly, maybe occasionally intervenes to do some miracles, you know, the God that sends bad people to hell and, and good people to heaven. I, I, I don't believe in that. And again, Tom Wright have, had this like stock response for what he calls the, the spy in the sky theology that people would, would name. Well, I'm not surprised you don't believe in that God because I don't believe in that God either. We're in our second teaching in a new series I'm calling Reconstructing Faith. Now, the idea of deconstruction, when it comes not to the world of buildings, but to the world of ideas, is actually a fairly recent one. It's connected to an era of thought known as postmodernism, also poststructuralism. Those are fairly connected, sometimes used interchangeably. Um, But the, the roots go all the way back to the Greeks, the skeptics, the philosophers around the time of Jesus. Now, deconstruction can look uh, for the ways that we've built systems of meaning and seek to identify how those systems might be flawed. And that often happens by examining the limitations of perspective that these structures of meaning have been built on. Sometimes discovering the flaws in those structures means taking them apart considering building different structures of meaning. As I've been pastoring this community for the last few years, I've discovered that many of us inhabiting this space are on some journey of our own, of deconstructing and reconstructing our spiritual frameworks. Our hope at Haven is that we're cultivating a safe space to do that work alongside one another. Sometimes this deconstructing examination is like purely theoretical. It's kind of an academic exercise. Often, it's forced by a circumstance that calls everything we'd understood about our faith into question. Kate Bowler thought she had a solid understanding and practice of faith in Jesus. She was raised a Mennonite in Canada, 
She fell in love with Jesus at a young age, her husband not long after. And she followed her mind and her passions into academia in the United States. She pursued religious history, zeroing in during her Ph.D. work, writing a doctoral dissertation on the prosperity gospel movement. Kate spent thousands of hours researching this movement's origins and interviewing its adherents. Her dissertation was published as a book. She was hired to teach religious history at a university. She had a husband she adored after some struggles with getting pregnant. In her early 30s, she did give birth to a beautiful boy who was her life. Life was going well. God was on her side. Things were good. And then came the diagnosis. Out of nowhere. Age 35. Stage 4 colon cancer. The diagnosis turned everything upside down. Not least of which was Kate's understanding of faith. It's not that she actually believed the prosperity gospel, that God promised her health and wealth, if only she'd believe or pray in the right way. But that doesn't mean that some seed of that theology hadn't entangled itself in her own system of belief and grown up like a weed. I'd love to report that when I, what I found in the prosperity gospel was something so foreign and terrible to me that I was warned away, she says. But what I discovered was both familiar and painfully sweet. The promise that I could curate my life, minimize my losses, stand on my successes, and no matter how many times I rolled my eyes at the creed's outrageous certainties, I craved them just the same. I had my own prosperity gospel, a flowering weed grown in with all the rest. Married in my 20s, a baby in my 30s, I won a job at my alma mater straight out of graduate school. I felt breathless with the possibilities. Actually, it's getting harder to remember what it felt like. But I don't think it was anything as simple as pride. It was certainty. Plain and simple. That God had a worthy plan for my life in which every setback would also be a step forward. I wanted God to make me good and make me faithful with just a few shining accolades along the way. Anything would do if hardships were only detours on my long life's journey. I believed God would make a way. I don't believe that anymore. The last Sunday we were together, I suggested that where this journey of deconstruction of faith often begins is with what I call the questions in the dark. The kind of questions that came roaring in for Kate for her husband, for their loved ones, when the crisis hit. In that teaching, I invited you to consider writing some of your questions in the dark down, submitting them to the community. Many of these were submitted anonymously. As we move forward in the series each week, I'm going to be sharing um, one or two, as well as um, I've also invited one or two people each week Uh, who would consider sharing a bit of their story of deconstruction or their questions with you themselves. 
And we're going to kind of organize these around four themes over the next four Sundays we're doing this. On the other side of Christmas, maybe we'll do some more. We'll kind of figure out where things are at after we get through Advent. So the first thing we're question, theme, we're going to be considering is the question that I think is really at the heart of N.T. Wright's exchange with his students and also connected to what fell apart for Kate Bowler. Who is God anyway? What should we be understanding about the identity of God? One of our cards that was submitted said, does God even exist? I get no feedback from God, no sense of his presence, or maybe I do and I don't know how to recognize it. Isaac has volunteered to share some of his story um, in having to deconstruct and reconstruct his understanding of God. And so I'd like to invite him to come up and share for a few minutes with us about that. Hello, everybody. So um, I'm Isaac, and I have volunteered to talk about deconstructing and reconstructing my identity of God. Um, And I'm going to read this so that I stick to the time limit. (laughs) Um, But just for some background information, um, I'm a trans guy. um, But uh, before I realized I was trans, I used to identify as a lesbian, which was a whole story in itself. Um, So I'm going to mainly speak to that experience as growing up as as a lesbian in the church. Um, So I grew up in an Assemblies of God conservative church about 20 minutes away from here. And I knew I was attracted to girls from a really young age. I had a crush on the pastor's daughters, my friends, the female Sunday school teacher. And at my church, I learned, also learned that from a really young age since really elementary school, that it was a sin to be gay and that I would go to hell if I was gay. And that played a part in forming who I knew God to be. God was this almighty being who set rules and standards that we humans needed to follow to access God and salvation. And I never resented God or was bitter at God for struggling with my attraction for girls. I put the blame and responsibility on myself. It was my responsibility to stop these perverse feelings and temptations, which is how I viewed it at that time. I prayed to change and constantly asked God for forgiveness. Of course, that created issues of not feeling good enough, thinking I was not working hard enough to change myself, constantly failing God and myself, which led to, of course, guilt and shame. I tried really hard to be straight until about my senior year of high school. I don't remember any dramatic steps happening, but one day I just felt God finally say, you're not going to change and you don't need to. It was so simple, but so profound. And at that time, I did not know how that lined up with scripture or how that was even possible but it just felt right. Fast forward a bit further into my senior year, I came out to a few friends at my church. At that time, I was also the drummer on the youth worship team and had been for a while. Eventually, word got around to the pastors that I was gay, and when they found out, they kicked me off the worship team. Um, And that was devastating, Um, but but I see now how crucial that event was. It made me realize that I needed to leave that church, which was extremely hard because it was my main community and my family. Because of that experience, I 100% believe that when a door shuts, it is because that is not the door God wants me to go through. That is not the door that will allow me to thrive and receive all that God has in plan for me. That closed door or part of my life was where a new life really began for me and where I got to experience God for the first time, take me by the hand and walk with me through new paths, which eventually brought freedom and abundance. 
So after I left the Assemblies of God Church, um, there was a season of wandering in the desert. It was very difficult to find a Christian LGBT-affirming church. And right as I was about to give up on finding a church, God finally led me to a church that changed my life. And at this church, which was Freedom in Christ, um, I was able to play the drums again for the worship team. I learned why it was not a sin or an abomination to be LGBT and how those clobbered passages have been misused. It is where my relationship with God flourished, where I, surrounded, where I was surrounded by people like me who are also LGBT and Christian and helped teach me to love myself and know God's deep love for me and every part of me. Being at this church also set the foundation for me when I realized I was transgender and needed to begin that journey. So since leaving the Assemblies of God Church, I have learned that God is not distant, detached, and whose love is conditional. I've learned that my God does not reject me because of my differences. Rather, God leaves the 99 and runs after me. I learned of a God who will always provide, especially in the situations that are hopeless and impossible. I learned of a God who brings new life to experiences that brought death. I've experienced and continue to experience a God who is closer than my breath, sees me as fearfully and wonderfully made, has given me great plans and a purpose, and a God who dances with me, leading my steps into an abundant life. Thank you, Isaac. Thank you for sharing your story. So Isaac's reflecting his experience of wrestling with the identity of God through lived circumstance. And I think a lot of us probably have our own version of that. But where do we start kind of meta? If we pull back from like our lived experience in pondering the identity of God. What direction might our orientation as a Jesus-centered community, which we are, point us in? At the heart of the Christian faith is an essential belief that God has communicated with humanity. That's kind of a core fundamental assumption of Christian faith. That God is a God of, and here's your first fill in the blank if you like to do that thing. God is a God of revelation. I think we should have this on the slide too. God is a God of revelation. But what's the nature Of this revelation. Does God reveal God's self in a way that gives us a super clear image of who God is? Or do the stories in the ark of revelation testify to something a little different? Now scripture has been looked at as a central component in the Judeo-Christian faiths of the revealed God, right? The revealed faith that Christianity testifies to looks to the Bible as a source of revelation. But the pictures of of the revelation of God that they present, I think, are actually pretty far from clear on how they should be put together. Let's just do a broad sweep. Just name a few things. The creation narrative describes God hovering over waters in the darkness, speaking the created world into being. This like spirit hovering over the waters. But Adam and Eve experience God as like a physical presence, this benevolent creator walking with them intimately through a garden, right? Until that God expels them for their disobedience. Abraham knows God as this like mysterious force who calls him out from his life and leads him on a journey with promises for his future, 
Hagar experiences God as the one who sees her, though no one else does. Moses experiences God in a burning bush, in a pillar of fire, in an encounter at the top of a mountain that leaves his face so radiant he has to wear a veil to shield people from it. The Hebrew slaves, of course, experience God as a deliverer of their people who attends to their cries. But this God is also so utterly different than them that the God is given what for the Jewish people is an unspeakable name. We Christians often say Yahweh because we don't feel the same sense of reverence. But actually the name was not to be pronounced. It was so reverent, so holy. All they knew about this God, this one who could not be named, their name meant they exist. I am. Right? There are stories of folks like Joshua and David that seem to testify to a God of war, vanquishing enemies, fighting for their people. But Samuel experiences God calling him intimately as he lays down to rest And Elijah encounters God in a gentle whisper in the mouth of a cave. And then there's Jesus. Jesus, who Christian faith would affirm is like the center of the revelation, the clearest revealer of God. But Jesus is the one paradox after another. A king announced by angels who's born to a poor couple and laid in a feed trough for animals. A carpenter turned rabbi who speaks not in like clear images, but in parables. And questions, saying things that confuse even his closest friends. And yet there is so much power in his words and his actions that people can't help but flock to him, even if they, none of them get him. He makes friends with the people that seem like the least likely to be interested in God. And he has the harshest words for the people who seem most religious. And rather than triumphing over everyone, Through victorious worldly strength, this revealer of God makes himself completely helpless. Innocently suffering the death of a seditious criminal, praying to God all the while to forgive the people because they don't know what they're doing. Even his resurrected self is a puzzle. It's hard to comprehend as he appears in like these random places out of nowhere. Walking through walls is unrecognizable at times to some of his friends. And yet at other times he seems utterly familiar and the same. All of these paradoxes leave us to wonder, what does all this show us actually about the nature of God? About how God is revealed in Christian faith? One of the most interesting stories we have of a, of a moment of personal revelation in the Bible, I think, what can be called a moment of conversion, is a story of a man who has his own radical encounter with Jesus, and it leaves a strange mark on him. This comes after the stories of Jesus' death and resurrection in the book of Acts, chapter 9. It's a familiar story. You've probably heard it, but let's just look at it briefly again, starting with verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing out threats to murder the Lord's disciples, went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, meaning the way of Jesus, either men or women, he could bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. 
And as he was going along, approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he said, who are you, Lord? He replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But stand up and enter the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now the men who were traveling with him stood there speechless, because they heard the voice but saw no one. So Saul got up from the ground. But although his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, his companions brought him into Damascus. And for three days he could not see And he neither ate nor drank anything. So here's what's fascinating to me about this story. A man encounters something utterly divine. And it comes through what the author Luke describes as a flashing light from heaven. That's an interesting image, right? There's a lot of imagery in the Bible about light. Light versus darkness. Light often seems to denote insight, clarity, Revelation, Isaiah spoke prophetically of a Messiah who would come, using these words we always hear at Christmas time. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. John began, began his account in the, of the life of Jesus speaking of the word becoming flesh, saying, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And Paul himself, the convert, after this account, this encounter with the flash of light, uses a phrase in a letter to his eventual mentee, Timothy, that I find particularly provocative of this God, as revealed by Jesus. He calls uh, God a God, I think I might have this one, maybe not, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see. A God who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Well, what's remarkable about that? We often think that light brings vision. We think that light brings the capacity to see clearly. But the effect of this divine light on Saul, who becomes Paul, is actually the opposite. And here's another fill in the blank, if you're following. Rather than bringing clarity, the light of God brings a kind of blindness. Sorry, that should be blindness, not darkness, although that's true too. Kind of blindness. Rather than bringing clarity, the light of God brings blindness. The light is so powerful, it's like a sensory overload. It's like too much to take in. It leaves Paul unable to see. Clouded in mystery. Even when he eventually gains back his physical sight, as he's prayed for by Ananias, like scales fall from his eyes, I think he's left forever marked by this mysterious encounter. He has moved from following a God he thought he fully understood clearly to having a God he would now call one who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or even could see. There's been a humbling. Something has shifted. Peter Rollins is a philosopher and a theologian 
that I've been reading a lot in the last couple of weeks. These are the books I've been reading. He has a lot more. Um, How Not to Speak of God and The Orthodox, Orthodox Heretic. Both of those are very interesting. Um, and so I'm going to be leaning a lot on his work in this teaching. And Rollins suggests that the phenomenon I'm highlighting that we see with Paul is actually often the nature of our encounter with the divine reality that we would call God. He says it this way, Revelation ought not to be thought of either as that which makes God known or as that which leaves God unknown, but rather as the overpowering light that renders God known as unknown. That feels deep, right? There's going to be a lot of those that are going to be kind of like head scratchers here. And you can just chew on them. And if you're like, I don't know, I don't get it, that's fine too. But there's, there's some deep ones here, okay? God is the overpowering, revealed as the overpowering light that renders God known as unknown. We know enough to see that there's something there, but we can't understand it. Here's another way he approaches that. In the same way that the sun blinds the one who looks directly at its light, so God's incoming blinds our intellect. It's too much for our minds to really comprehend if we could perceive it all. It's just like our brains couldn't actually conceive it all. The mystics, the Christian mystics, going back to very, very early in Christian faith, have long understood this paradox. Uh, I took a class called Christian Mysticism my freshman year in undergrad. And one of the first texts we read was The Cloud of Unknowing, which highlights for the worshiper the mysterious nature of God. The the, The visual was that God kind of exists separated from us by this cloud of mystery. And we can connect but it's through the cloud. There's always that sense of God's veiledness. The late 5th century theologian Pseudo-Dionysius taught that the more we attend to the source of our faith, the more we realize how little we know. Even the language of mysticism testifies to the paradox of a blinding revelation. Rollins points this out. The word mystic itself is derived from the Greek verb muo, which refers to the closing of one's lips or eyes. It's also connected with the Greek word mystikos, which relates to the idea of having been initiated into the light. So the result is a word that casts up the idea of closing one's eyes so as to be able to see. Interesting, right? Becoming blind so we might see. In the wake of Kate Bowler's diagnosis, person after person tried to help her find some logical way of understanding what was happening to her. This is the name of her book, which I also recommend. Everything happens for a reason, right? And other lies I've loved is what she calls it. But everything happens for a reason was something one of her neighbors actually told her husband a few days after her diagnosis while bringing over a casserole trying to be helpful, of course, and encouraging. I'd love to know what it is, her husband said. What do you mean? I'd love to know what the reason is that my wife is dying. The truth is the event defied logical explanation. It defied confident theology. 
That didn't mean that God fell apart for Kate, though. Merely her understanding of God fell apart. She says it this way. In those first few days after my diagnosis, when I was in the hospital and I couldn't see my son and I couldn't get out of bed and I couldn't say for certain that I would survive the year, but I felt as though I'd uncovered something like a secret about faith. Even in lucid moments, I found my feelings so difficult to explain. I kept saying the same thing. I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. At a time when I should have felt abandoned by God, I was not reduced to ashes. I felt like I was floating. Floating on the love and prayers of all those who hummed around me like worker bees, bringing notes and flowers and warm socks and quilts embroidered with words of encouragement. And they came in like priests and mirrored back to me the face of Jesus. When they sat beside me, my hand in their hands, my own suffering began to feel like it had revealed to me the suffering of others. A world of those who, like me, are stumbling in the debris of dreams they thought they were entitled to and plans they didn't realize they had made. And that feeling stayed with me for months. In fact, I'd grown so accustomed to that floating feeling, I started to panic at the prospect of losing it. So I began to ask friends, theologians, historians, pastors I knew, and nuns that I liked, What am I going to do when it's gone? And they knew exactly what I meant because they'd either felt it themselves or read about it in great works of Christian theology. St. Augustine called it the sweetness. Thomas Aquinas called it something mystical like the prophetic light. But all said, yes, it will go. The feelings will go. The sense of God's presence will go. There will be no lasting proof that God exists. There will be no formula for how to get it back. But they offered me this small bit of certainty, and I clung to it. When the feelings recede, like the tides, they said, they will leave an imprint. I would somehow be marked by the presence of an unbidden God. Saul, who became Paul, had his own mystical experience on the road to Damascus. He was one who believed he had a firm grasp on his understanding of God. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He'd given his life to devotedly studying the Torah, to weighing what one rabbi said against another rabbi, to memorizing much of Scripture trying to embody it to a T, following every formula he'd been handed precisely for honoring the God of his ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was confident in his capacity to honor God correctly, completely clear, so clear that without a moment's hesitation, he approved when he saw his Jewish brothers and sisters throwing stones at a man named Stephen, who had the audacity to claim that Jesus of Nazareth had risen from the dead and was the Messiah. Saul was inspired by the display, found a new mission for his faithfulness to God, to hunt down the rest of those heretics and stop them all. 
But when he encountered the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, what he experienced there was what the Bible often describes as the glory of God. And he went from clarity of vision to blindness. It wasn't a blindness born of darkness, of lack of revelation, of nothing there. It was a blindness born of too much light. A blindness that came from perceiving that God is so much more than the eyes could ever behold. Over a thousand years later, Saint Anselm of Canterbury wrote that God is something greater than can be thought. I think we have this one too. Saint Anselm said, God is something greater than can be thought. This is another head scratcher because what he's saying paradoxically, is the only way we can begin to conceive of God is to recognize that God is beyond what we can conceive. The only way we can begin to conceive of God is to recognize that God is beyond what we can conceive. But if God is so mysterious and blinding, so utterly inconceivable, like how can we even begin to represent God or speak of God at all? in a meaningful way? That's a fair question. As we consider that question, I think it's important to remember that Jesus-centered faith has two ways of thinking about images in relation to the divine. There are icons and there are idols. There are icons and there are idols. First, let's talk about idols. Idols appear in the Hebrew Bible. It's clear early on God is not a fan, right? Does not approve. Most famously, of course, is the incident at Mount Sinai. Moses is up on the mountain meeting with God. People are getting impatient. And so they have Aaron fashion them a golden calf. Now the problem is not initially that they want something to look at to remind them of Yahweh. The problem is they begin to substitute the image for Yahweh begin to worship as if it actually were the physical manifestation of their God. That's the problem. In the same way, we humans still have a tendency to make idols. They're just not as easy to see and touch as the ones our ancient ancestors made. Peter Rollins calls these, and I wish I had had this a year ago, because I think it's great the way he names it. He says there's two categories of idols, aesthetic and conceptual. Aesthetic and conceptual. And here's the difference. The only significant difference, he says, between the aesthetic idol and the conceptual idol lies in the fact that the former reduces God to a physical object, while the latter reduces God to an intellectual object. Okay? Have you reduced God to an intellectual object that you can examine objectively? This is the concept we were exploring a year ago when I did the Smashing Idols series, okay? If you missed it, if you weren't here, I highly recommend, and you haven't listened to it before, I highly recommend you go to the website. I'm not the type to, like, toot my horn and be like, you need to hear this. Um, But this is one that feels like it was really important for our community, for what we're exploring, and, uh, and it's totally in line with this idea of conceptual idols. We were, we were exploring in that series how various social constructs, such as 
androcentrism, which is the belief that maleness is normative, maleness is normal, um, female, anything other than male is a little bit less normal, um, or heteronormativity, or whiteness, how all of those can distort our views of God, leaving us to believe that God must be male, God must be straight, God must be white. But as Anselm, St. Anselm and Peter Rollins remind us, conceptual idols, concepts of God, can go beyond God is straight and white, right? In fact, any conception of God that would claim it's a totally clear picture of who God is, is actually an idol. So here's a real head-scratcher, okay? For Rollins, to be a Christian is actually also to be an atheist. To be a Christian is also to be an atheist. Because atheism is socially bound. It is contextual. In the same way that N.T. Wright was affirming with those students, I reject that God too. Any God we would reject is really an idea of God, right? And if this is true, that our God is bigger than we could conceive, then the, the faithful follower of Jesus must always be rejecting false concepts of God. That's the work of atheism. Mindbender, right? But he says it this way. It's an atheism which is born not from a lack or a rejection of faith, but rather from the heart of faith. An atheism that rejects our understanding of God precisely because it recognizes God is bigger, better, and different than we could ever imagine. It doesn't mean that we cannot describe God in any way, but it does mean that even as we seek to describe God, we recognize that our words are all provisional, incomplete, not the whole picture. We can talk about God, but when we do so, I kind of say, we should imagine an asterisk at the end of every sentence, not a firm period, right? It's like an asterisk with it, not the full picture. <laughs> Though I can say it confidently. From this point of view... Our doubts, our questions, rather than being threats to our faith, are actually helpful tools in our growth because they reveal where our thoughts about God fall short. Those nagging questions in the dark actually lead us to see what we need to reject so we know what we can affirm. Right? Because any true statement about God only reveals a portion of who God is, we also need a wide array of words and images and ways of thought to testify to the divine. We need a diverse set of voices. It's okay that we see a confusing set of pictures in the Bible because we have a, a God that is beyond our ability to understand. That is good. We don't need idols to stand in God's place, but we do need a variety of icons to help us encounter the God we can't conceive. So what's an icon? The word icon comes to us from the Greek word for image. That's what it is. Icon is the word that was used, would have been used in the Bible 
that Paul was reading, the Greek translation of Genesis. And then God said, let us make mankind in our icon. In the icon of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's also the word that Paul himself would use to describe how Jesus reveals God. He is the icon of the invisible God, Paul would say. The icon is more than a physical representation. It's, it's not a physical representation. It's a space for encounter. Icons are intended not to be replicas of the divine. They're intended to be images that reflect some of the divine. Aids in contemplation. Bringing us into relationship with that which we cannot conceive. But we must remember that they themselves aren't the picture. They're merely a reflection, as in a glass darkly, that helps us see the reflected glory. For we could never look it straight in the eyes. Peter Rollins compares this to how we relate to the flesh of another person. If we reduce someone simply to their flesh, we've objectified them. But there's another way you can connect with someone, particularly someone you love, through their flesh, their body, their form, their face particularly, becomes the means through which you encounter them. You know it's not all of who they are, but it helps reveal who they are. Rollins puts it this way, the face is the place where the beloved is both revealed and hidden. The face is the place where the beloved is both revealed and hidden, as is the icon. So what does the Jesus, the icon, tell us of God? I don't want to end with this complete, simple, clear picture. I've been actually more interested in just trying to break open our minds a little bit today. But I do, I also, I don't want to create another idol but I do think there are some things we can testify to. A few things I find provocative and helpful as we close about the God that seems to be revealed in this Jesus-centered faith. And first is the idea that we've been meditating upon, that God is beyond us. This is a God of another dimension we're talking about. The God is other. This biblical world often used for this idea is holy. Set apart is what that word means. Other than, unique, different. But secondly, the story of our faith testifies to a divine being that isn't just off there in some other dimension and could care less about what's happening here. That, that's the God of deism. It's not the God of our faith. Our faith seems to testify to a God who is invested in us. A God who is invested in us. A God who seems to care about creation, particularly humanity. It's not indifferent. A God that wants to be connected to the human race. A story of a God who calls a people unto God's self, builds a relationship called covenant of promise and commitment a kind of allegiance of care and connection. And this God does this with the promise that it's not exclusive, but it's going to bless all of humanity, all of creation, everyone, 
is going to be a part of it. It's a story of a God whose heart seems to be moved by suffering. And so this God intervenes to liberate the oppressed. And finally, through the icon of Jesus, I believe God seems to reveal that God's primary orientation toward humanity, toward creation, is love. A love so deep that it cannot bear to allow humanity to suffer apart from itself. A love that expresses itself through the choice to suffer with and on behalf of the beloved. A love that has extended itself for the whole world. As Jesus himself says, no one has greater love than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. It is not all of who God is. But for me, these are three helpful icons to meditate on. God, who is wholly other, beyond my capacity to conceive, veiled in glory and holiness, but God, who is invested in humanity on a large scale and on a very intimate scale. God, revealed in Jesus, invested particularly in demonstrating self-giving love and acceptance to every human being. We're not going to figure God out. We're not going to confidently answer the question of who God is. And that isn't our endeavor. Our call as the body of Christ, I believe, is actually to follow, <coughs> to follow Christ into the work of iconography. Our call as the body of Christ is to follow Christ into the work of iconography. We are invited to participate as icons, to be icons, reflecting this mysterious God in the world we inhabit, just as Kate Bowler experienced God reflected to her through the loved ones around her in her moment of crisis. There's a lot of freaking crisis right now, amen? There is a lot of crisis. There is a lot of darkness in the world around us. There is a high need for icons to reflect some light. And I believe that is what the church is meant to do. None of us will do it perfectly. We don't need to. But I pray our endeavors to do so will lead us ever closer in our pursuit of the one we cannot name, but long to connect with. I pray we experience this last idea of Peter Rollins, that while we do not grasp God, faith is born amidst the feeling that God grasps us. While we do not grasp God, faith is born amidst the feeling that God grasps us. May we be testament to that. Amen.